Welcome to Democracy in Color with Steve Phillips, a color-conscious podcast about politics. I'm your host, Steve Phillips, and it's December. And this is going to be our end-of-the-year podcast where we're going to reflect back on the year that was, look at some of our prior episodes, and really just try to do what people do at the end of the year, which is take a look back. And so I'm looking forward to this conversation. And for this conversation, I'm joined not only by my regular co-host, Charlene Chang, but also by Fola Onifade, who is coming around to the other side of the microphone and the camera and to join us as one of the hosts for this podcast. Hi, Charlene. Hi, Fola. And do you want to take us down this walk down memory lane? Hi, Steve. Hi, Fola. I'm so stoked to have Fola on today. <laughs> I'm excited to be on. Thank you guys for inviting me. Uh, anytime. Love having you here. Yeah, I can't believe it's true, but we're here at the end of the year. And I, I know it's like it reminds me of oh, sometimes I, it just happens like throughout the year, people go like me and my friends will go, I can't believe it's spring. Can you believe it's June already? How did it become August? And now it's like, Okay, how did it become mid mid December? Yeah. <laughs> but here we are, and it's been quite the year. This is our final episode of 2023, uh, and I know I've said this before, but if you really stand back, Steve, especially you and I, and go look at the number 2023, <laughs> it seems like I say like where where's my jetpack? It seems like mm. that, I, I'm sure that when I was a kid, I would think that that was like so futuristic. Right. Haven't we already gone past the year that um, the show Back to the Future was set in or something like that? So. Oh, yeah. That's a really good context. It's been such a year and we are actually going to be taking a break for the holidays. And there's not going to be another episode after this one. So there's not going to be another episode at the very end of December. So this is going to be our last episode of this year. And it's just, you know, what a year it's been as we were planning out this episode, you know, what we were all talking about was reflecting on the different episodes we had and just how many amazing guests we had as, as usual and the range of issues we covered. So for this final episode, uh, we're going to be taking a, a little walk down memory lane 12, these past 12 months and talking about some of our favorite podcast moments, different moments that moved us, particularly thought-provoking, and just reflecting on those conversations, especially the ones we've had with our guests. So let's get down to it and sort of think back to all the things that really stood out to us. Yeah. So as you two were sharing some of your favorite episodes from throughout the year, um, and as I was thinking about this one, I saw two major themes kind of stick out from the guests we've had. One of them was the importance of storytelling, and the mm. other one was the role of building coalitions mm -hmm. in the work that we do. So I thought those were two ways we could frame the episodes that we're going to talk about today. And I think it's also just important in thinking about 2024 and moving on, both of those, those two pieces. So we'll be covering the episodes both from a storytelling perspective and a coalition. I'm excited for that. As you're like such a smarty. I mean, that there's that many episodes. I didn't do the math, but to find the some common threads, and those mm -hmm. are definitely some really powerful common threads in the conversations we did have with our guests. And I think that for me, so what we're talking about, right? So I'm just going to start naming some of the episodes that stand out to me, like what I think about when I think about the conversations we had this year with our guests. And I uh, have a 
episode that has a special place in my heart, and that's the one with my good longtime friend Shoshana Guy. And talk about a storyteller. She's a great example. And I thought that conversation, that episode was a great uh, example of the power and role of storytelling and who the storyteller is, who the storytellers are, and the power in that combination of who gets to change and disrupt and correct the narrative. So just for some context, Shoshana, again, she's a longtime friend of mine. She's an Emmy-nominated and Peabody Award-winning producer. She's a writer. She's a journalist. Joined us in February. And she talked to us about the 1619 docu-series on Hulu. So many people know about the 1619 project that started off as the New York Times. It was a kind of magazine special project. It was written and spearheaded by New York, New York Times journalist Nicole Hannah-Jones and went on to win the Pulitzer. Well, Shoshana was invited by Nicole and her team to be the showrunner of the 1619 Project docuseries. And that series has been nominated, by the way, for three Emmy Awards. I think those Emmys get announced in and decided in January. And then recently it won the Best Limited Series Award at the Critics' Choice Documentary Awards. And so that was just really special, Shoshana, to have somebody who I think of as like, what do they call sister from another mister <laughs> somebody i feel really close to and have known for about 20 years to be also an excellent ideal guest for us to sit down and talk about the work mm-hmm. we do and the work she does um so here's a clip of her talking about the episode it's a multi um, episode series but this is an episode and that she co-directed, which focused on Black maternal health and how it traces all the way back to the origins of Black history in this country. It's really powerful, and I think it was very eye-opening, that particular episode, because it covered some provided insights that I think a lot of people don't have in connecting those two issues. You know, so whatever, you know, the father had, the child would then have. And they're like, well, this can't, this can't, this can't work out. We can't be having you know, black people entitled to our wealth mm-hmm. and, and, and more importantly, entitled to our power. So we have to write laws that say any child born to a black woman is automatically black and therefore automatically enslaved. And so really the concept of race starts in black women's wombs in this country. Oh. And so if we were going to if we were going to start there, then we had to draw that line all the way to present, you know, and, and what happens to our babies. It's really interesting hearing that and reflecting back on that episode and i hadn't well it wasn't planned you know at all in advance how this came about but i am as we're recording this i've just come from a weekend spent um in tennessee at the alex haley farm and so people who don't know like alex haley was the writer of roots which became the you know seminal television show somebody said at this uh, retreat that we're on the land that kunta kinte built Mm -hmm. and tells the story of Africans coming to this country in 1619, and then what the whole journey had been. And so it's just, and I was had a, and they have preserved this land to be able to do trainings on the Children's Defense Fund owns it now. Um, and they try to do gatherings, and there's going to be like leadership development. And it's an ongoing, tangible piece of connection to this history that is captured in 1619. And so it's just I'm kind of having a moment here to a certain extent in terms of the, the seminal significance of, you know, the work of Nicole Hannah Jones of doing 1619 and then turning that into the documentary and that continuing to have that story 
and that work and that example frame and shape and inspire us today. And I very much actually felt that quite tangibly this past weekend when I was on the on the Haley Farm. Yeah, I, I guess I, I think that's great. And I, I think also it means so much sometimes. I feel like sometimes I hear people say, you know, Black history, African history started before colonization. It started before slavery. And there's mm-hmm. so much history that we don't get taught, of course. But like even having that point of view that the stories we were told about people who were brought and enslaved in the U.S., like the the way we're taught it isn't even accurate, um, which just makes me nervous about where history and education is going now, mm-hmm. like how little I feel I knew before and now like book bannings and CRT, quote unquote, just like, but we also have TikTok. <laughs> right. A lot on TikTok. Yeah. Well, it's interesting, the thing about you know, those platforms and culture, and I think there's a lot of, you know, music went on TikTok as well, as you were just talking, you know, Phil was making me think that for, I don't know, whatever reason, I, there's this um, album by Wynton Marsalis called Blood on the Field, and that I kind of listen to that when I write sometimes, and then more, I really get, there's a, was it Plantation Coffee March, I think is one of the songs, and then it's, I sometimes think in lyrics, I like have our lyric playing in my head, and I was like, why am I thinking this? Oh, it makes sense something. And there is this line in there that I say, you know, I like really resonate with over and over, and it says, I am a prince, no common man, and soon I will be free. And mm-hmm. so, we, this notion of how we're portrayed, did we just come here, you know, as slaves, people had lives mm-hmm. before that, they had you know, all these accomplishments before that, as well as the, all the things and the courage and the work that was done during slavery as well. Mm-hmm. I think that was a good point that you made, Steve, just in terms of the the power of storytelling and the role of storytelling, and we'll get into that with some of the other episodes including uh, this next one, which was our Halloween episode with Sabrina the Teenage, which is Beth Broderick, which I I loved working on this episode. But there were um, a lot of things missing from our politics that are still missing today. And so I'll never give up trying trying to work towards a better union, a more perfect union. I mean, I don't care how crazy it gets. I'll never stop speaking out and I'll never give up. And, you know, you think about Ellen DeGeneres coming out, being the first person to come out as lesbian on television and being fired for doing so. And, and the progress that we have made since then in, in the ways that we depict people from the LGBTQ community, you know, like people with disabilities now often are hired to portray themselves, to, mm-hmm. to inhabit their own disability on screen, as opposed to having an actor pretending to be disabled. So we are getting better we have a long way to go, but I do think that these sort of things resonate both in our culture and in our politics. If you look at the fury on the right towards this simple movie, Barbie, mm-hmm. you know, it's almost it's almost hard to grasp that this movie could be such a problem for people on, on the far right, and yet they, they consider it a real threat. Yeah, so that was so great in terms of having that. And I've known Beth for 20 years now, almost 20 years. And, and ironically, well, not ironically, I guess, we get into all of our stereotypes, but I was not a Sabrina the Teenage Witch person in terms of my, but I know Beth you were not politics. The, you were not the target audience for that I don't. Show. I was definitely not the target audience, that much is clear. 
But I know about through politics. We were on the board of the organization Progressive Majority that recruited people to run for office. Um, and so I've seen her become friends with her in the context of social change work. And then that's brought me over to see and support her work in uh, entertainment and arts. And so she came out, she was talking about the actor's strike, which uh, was able to be settled. And that's the thing, uh, maybe we can just talk about this next year, but the, the, there was a, some significant labor advances and, and wins this past year. The United Auto Workers um, also went on a significant strike and made some very significant gains with their uh, uh, contract they got. The actors, the writers all resolved their strikes. So from a labor standpoint, that's good. And then from an entertainment standpoint, we can start to look for new content coming out in 2024. So it was just really glad to have Beth on to, to share her history and her activism, the work she did around domestic violence and around the AIDS crisis. I found it was very inspiring. I was really glad to be able to share that with our audience. Yeah, I just really appreciated having her on too and hearing her talk about disrupting the image that some of us have about actors and actresses. Mm-hmm. Um, just remembering that they are multitudes and that we only think of them in one di- kind of one dimension because we see them on, on screen and we think, okay, they're that character and then they act. But then to be reminded that there are probably plenty of people out there like Beth who are A, at their core, people who deeply care about their causes and have been fighting for them, just like having learned how young she was when she was fighting for the dignity of people with AIDS, really challenged my assumptions Mm -hmm. about somebody that I saw on screen who was this beautiful blonde woman, you Mm -hmm. know, and that was, I just associated, I just thought, oh, she's just an actress. And then, you know, and I only thought to myself that she wasn't because you had said you were friends with her and that she was this activist. But when she really started talking about her personal journey and the things that she did at a very young age that nobody was really doing being with by the side of people living with AIDS when um, and I remember that period I mean I was younger when they were so ostracized and they were so vilified um, it was really really moving to me and made me realize that um, just another reminder not to judge people by their cover and how she uses her platform to speak out about the issues that she believes in. Yeah, I've been rewatching the show since we had that episode. And, you know, I started watching it before she came on and then I kind of will like have it on in the background sometimes. And I just kind of see her in this whole new light now. And just even the show in, in general being about, you know, this young teenage girl coming into her power, you know, this witch, but also like, you know, just a young person in high school. So um, it still holds up really well. <laughs> We also had some really incredible authors this past year. We had Tolu Alarunikba and Robert Samuels um, back in May. They are now Pulitzer Prize winners for their book, His Name is George Floyd. And actually in one of our November newsletters, we shared a New Yorker piece from Robert about how the book has now been caught up in censorship wars. Um, They were giving a talk and the talk was supposed to be about the book, but kids were not allowed to read the book and like kind of a whole thing. It just really is really telling the book itself, such an important history that they were able to pull out of one man's life that really transformed you know, politics, I think was a moment of consciousness for a lot of us um, when it happened. So this is uh, a clip from when Tolu and Robert were on. 
Yeah, I'm, I'm really glad you read that that part of the book uh, in part because it, it sort of exemplifies the the thesis uh, about systemic racism, not only told through George Floyd's life, but in order to tell the true story of the Black American experience and George Floyd's experience, we had to go back you know, a couple hundred years to the story of his family. And that is a story of constant striving, constant trying, and getting knocked down by systems and forces and people with bad intentions. Yeah, and it was really great. I met Tolu at the Tucson Festival of Books, where I uh, was panel with him. So we we're talking about our respective books. His book had come out, and uh, it, you know, I was touring around Hollywood in the Civil War. And it was so great to talk with him. And then I really, I resonated and recognized immediately when I was actually re reading some of his book in preparation for that panel, the care that he had taken in terms of trying to tell the story. And I, I felt it in terms of the, I tried to take you know as much care as I could in terms of telling the stories in my book, and I could just see it in his, and then also the his connections to history, right? And so obviously, right, I've, I've been trying to advocate this analysis and lens of looking at contemporary events through the lens of the ongoing uh, struggle to, that began with the Civil War. And so one of the major pieces was there was this backlash, right, after uh, Reconstruction and African-Americans, some African-Americans be able to like acquire land and build businesses and acquire a little bit of wealth. And there's a, uh, you know, I don't know if famous isn't the right word, infamous, well-known massacre in Wilmington, North Carolina, where almost all of the black folks who had money were either killed or their land stolen and their wealth taken. And what Tolu does in his book is he traces George Floyd's direct lineage back to that Wilmington massacre. One of his relatives was right was part of that mm. whole um, situation and where they went from being somebody who had resources to somebody who was not because of this uh, white domestic terrorism. And then you fast forward that all the way up to George Floyd the reason that the cops were called because he didn't have the money to be able to buy whatever he was trying to buy in that, uh, you know, gas station store. Mm. So I just it was really appreciated how we could tie those things together and how Tolu lifted up these larger themes and lessons that are critical uh, to understand how, how and why things came to be. Yeah, def I definitely also really appreciated that conversation was so happy when I went to go, you know, check on the news about Pulitzer winners this year. And lo and behold, their book won a Pulitzer. So yeah. well, our podcast Fantastic. projected them yes. to the <laughs> oh, yeah. all us. Yes. <laughs> I was just really excited for them. So to wrap up this theme and thread around storytelling, I wanted to mention an episode that I was also very, very dear to my heart and really Really, I really appreciated, and I'll definitely remember as one of my highlights this year. And that was the episode when we got to sit down and have a conversation with Newbery Award winner Amina Lookman Dawson on her debut novel, Free Water. Now, we had Amina on in June, and that episode was special to me, not only because I think, well, first of all, Amina is just so incredible. She's warm, she's smart, and she's an artist and she's uh, just a creative force and I just think I just think the world of her and I was just delighted to get to talk with her after Steve you had mentioned her because you have you know been friends with her and known her um, over the years but I also I'm a I'm a writer I'm a creative writer so it was really nice kind of change of pace to have an author on an author of a 
a children's book or book for young people. And I got to, as part of our planning, we decided it would be fun if I asked my daughter to read the book, her book, Free Water. My daughter's in middle school. And then to provide us with a clip of her asking Amina a question and then Amina answering it. So that was really special. It made my daughter's day, if not year. We shared it with her friends and some of our families who were friends with and their kids just couldn't believe, you know, she got to be on a podcast. She's famous, <laughs> meaning my daughter, of course, because she had a two second clip. And yeah, thrilled to get to chance to get to know Amina, understand her process. By the way, uh, just to let li uh, listeners know, for those who may not have listened to the, that episode. So again, this was Amina's first book ever. It was her debut novel, but she had not had other books before. And it went on to win the Newbery Award, which is the very top children's book award in the country. What she accomplished was just an amazing feat. And it's a fantastic book, Free Water. And I'm going to wrap up this thread on storytelling on and sharing a little bit about uh, Amina talking about her book. For me, what was the best way that I felt I could reach children? What, what, how could I best reach my audience? And I automatically knew it was fiction. I never considered nonfiction, even though lately I have been asked that, like, why not nonfiction? This is great, a great tidbit of history. Why not use that as a tool? And I know automatically why not. I know because it, when I was a child, I knew that I very much related to what fiction does for you. Fiction takes away sort of, it, it takes you from the knowing of information to the actual feeling of that information and the feeling of the moment. And that is what I really wanted for my son. I want it for all children. I wanted them to be able to have a, a heartfelt connection with enslaved people beyond what they quote unquote would know about them because that heartfelt connection is what stays with you for a lifetime. Yeah, just a couple other things I want to say about, you know, Mina and that clip in that it was I think we talked about it in the in the episode. I think and hope we hope it came through as I was as you said, I, you know, I don't know Mina for almost 25 years, I think now. And uh she and she worked with me and Susan um really back in the late 90s and so it was very meaningful to me on a couple of different levels one is that and actually amina came out we did a celebration of life for susan in september amina came out and talked about how susan had encouraged her and supported her and inspired her and so that level of connection of seeing someone that we had supported and invested in going on to flourish and spread their influence over the country was deeply meaningful and moving to me and then on the on the larger social change point, a similar reality. I've seen Mina's trajectory and and could recognize her talent and potential far back as the late 90s. And so then to see her be given the support, the opportunity, the platform to give full expression to her talent and to see it have this level of success validates this you know point I think we try to make a lot is that there's a tremendous amount of talent that's being overlooked, underdeveloped, and underappreciated out there. And I think Amina is an example um, of what's possible in that regard. And then the other point I wanted to make is that it does feel like the there's there is. I was at this. I mentioned I was at this re retreat on the on the Haley Farm, and the the phrase was being used there in terms of looking at this moment in the context of the you know past several decades and where we're going in the next upcoming decades. That something is afoot in terms of the 
social change within this country. And I definitely think that that is the case. And I also think in this context we're talking about here around storytelling, that something is afoot in the world of art and culture as well. And that you could see it. I mean, you saw it in terms of the, um, well, even to the extent of I was listening to a business podcast about the year in business. And they were talking about an example of how the economy is bouncing back is the extent of enthusiasm and support and spending for Beyonce and Taylor Swift tickets. And I thought mm -hmm. that showed like the reach of how far an, an impact on the society that has had. So it's beyond even like my friend circle. I have you know, a number of friends, you know, Rosa Castaneda, Lara, Lara Brady, like went to these different concerts and spent a lot of money to go to them. But it meant something significantly. And so to have these women, with Beyonce, a woman of color, with Taylor Swift, a woman, basically revolutionizing much of the way the entertainment industry uh, functions in terms of bypassing a lot of the traditional structures. You have all of that happening. And then also the movie uh, Barbie, which I do still need to see. I will note to yes, our producer, do, Olivia Parker, who's like, you haven't seen it yet? But to have a movie like that, it's clearly, I mean, you guys have seen it, test, attest more to it, but I could just see its significance in terms of the art and culture giving expression to what we talk about in terms of the new American majority within this country, a population that wants this to be a multiracial um, democracy, has that's being manifested in many ways through the art and culture out there. Yes, I can attest. I saw the Beyonce concert with my sister at the MetLife Stadium in July, and that was so special for the two of us because, you know, it's been such a rough year. We didn't even know if we were going to make it, mm. but... It was such a beautiful experience. And then actually the movie just came out last weekend and I went to see it last weekend with mm. one of my friends and my sister went to see it yesterday. Um, and it's like reliving the concert all over again. I also saw Barbie when that came out and really loved that. And there's a podcast that I listen to called Vibe Check and it's three, I, I think they're all authors. Uh, maybe one's a poet, a journalist. But one of the points they made about where we are culturally with like Barbie, Beyonce, Taylor Swift is there's this sense of like collective viewing happening mm. where for, you know, with all the streaming platforms and stuff, everyone kind of just gets siloed into their own niche. Mm -hmm. But Barbie, Beyonce, Taylor Swift, like there's actually like zeitgeist mm -hmm. movements happening with, with, with those events. So yeah, um, I've been really excited to be a part of it and <laughs> I will say that I have contributed to the economy. Yes, it sounds like your whole family is contributing to the economy. So. <laughs> so pivoting to the other major theme that kind of emerged as I was thinking about our episodes from this year was the importance of coalition building. And I think the episode that really best summed that up was the 40 Years of the Rainbow Coalition episode we did, mm. which was really fun to work on as well. It's different from some of the episodes that we typically do um, we had uh, Rainbow Coalition alumni send us their memories and some of their fondest moments from being a part of the Rainbow Coalition. And it was, it really felt like oral history, uh, getting those perspectives and being taken back to that time. So we'll share a clip from, from that episode now. Jesse Jackson not only wanted our vote, he cared about our issues. I learned what solidarity meant in real life. And I learned that if we unite as a rainbow, 
black, brown, Asian, American Indian, white working people, that we can secure victories without support from status quo elected officials. I believe that then and I believe that now. I learned a lot from Jesse Jackson's campaign and there are lessons that I carry with me to this very day. Oh, let me tie this together in terms of a connection to another prior episode we had done where we talked about my commencement speech at the CUNY School of Labor and Urban Studies, where I organizing principle of that was this art piece and this poem, right, for my people. And uh, the, the, it's a Barbara uh, Hogu art piece called Rise and Take Control, which just comes from the Margaret Walker poem, For My People. So I've really been spending this past year, you know, trying to reflect, think about, you know, both rebuilding my life, but also how I want to be nurtured and supported and inspired in terms of the going forward and drawing on art and culture to do that. So one of the seminal experiences in my life was Jesse Jackson's presidential campaigns when he ran for president in 1980. I think I talked about this in the podcast about how it's it's so hard to uh, reset the environment for people today. Right. This was before Spike Lee, before any of these television shows that had different black characters. You had this black man saying he wanted to be president of the United States of America and contending for that. So for 18, 19, 20-year-old kid like I was, that was just so deeply inspiring. As somebody who loves words, it was deeply inspiring. So you take that, then you have this whole art piece. And so I'm trying to finish out the art in my living room and... One of my friends, um, I talked about it in that earlier podcast, Aaron Cabral, told me about G's Bend Collective, which is a collective of black women in Alabama who make quilts. And they have a connection to the civil rights movement, Martin Luther King. Actually, they're on Etsy, I believe. They have a site. You can buy their quilts. Some of them are in museums around the country. And so I've gotten one of those. And that's going to be the centerpiece mm. for my living room. And I've been trying to think about how to tie in Jesse Jackson into the whole art constellation in my house. And I haven't been able to figure mm. it out until I was thinking about this quilt. And there is a metaphor Jesse used to use in his convention speeches. And we used to like recite it. And he says, America's not like a blanket. One piece of unbroken cloth, the same texture, the same size, the same color. America's more like a quilt. Many patches, many pieces, many colors bound by a common thread. And we used to walk around saying, bound by, because he would say that so dramatically and whatnot. But I'm going to figure out a way to stitch that, those words around this quilt, which is going to go into my living room, which will be a civil rights connection. And then Jesse obviously came of age in the civil rights movement. So that episode was very meaningful to me. And I wanted to share that update in terms of my art journey as well and how the Jesse piece has been part of that. I was going to say, I am so here for this chapter of your life as the, you know, thinking deeply about art and your space and Mm -hmm. how to have that art in your space reflect who you are and what you care about. Um, Very inspiring. Yeah. Well, we're doing video, right? So this is in my background here is... Well, it's a printout of a painting I'm going to be getting, but I've, well, I've bought, but it just hasn't gotten here yet. It's called Boogaloo Yazoo by Napoleon Jones Henderson. This is a black painter, and he says it's really to celebrate the people in his life who influenced and shaped him, the men and women. So he's trying to have that with this. This is another piece of the art. Cool, Steve. That's awesome. Speaking of the, the Rainbow Coalition episode, I just wanted to shout out 
to the guests we had on for that episode that we were in conversation with. Uh, his name was Eddie Wong. And I loved getting to talk to Eddie. He, Eddie is the former national field director for Reverend Jesse Jackson's 1988 presidential campaign. He's also a longtime filmmaker and he's a natural storyteller as well. And uh, I, I, I'm saying this with like the utmost respect, but he's a living legend. We've had a few of those types on our podcast. And I always feel so honored to talk to people who have been in the movement for so long. And for me as a Chinese American woman who has been on a much later path as an activist, for me to be able to get a chance to talk to him, he was, uh, you know, started when he was young, he was one of those Chinese American activists who has been, you know, a part of that history that was made in the, I think, like the 1960s, 70s of during a time when it was much less common, it was much it was just harder, like harder to be a young Chinese American activist in, say, like tell you know doing that, and your family saying for sure, like, what are you doing? Your community saying, you know, let's keep our heads down. We don't do that. We don't make noise. It's, it was much riskier, and that was just the beginning, the forefront of progressive Asian American activism. So to be able to talk to somebody like Eddie, who was there and continues to be working, not only on the Asian American front, but in multiracial coalition so that you know he's a real OG and he very early on was working and got to experience and be part of the depth and breadth of power and the of the power of building across race class gender and all the identities to form like coalitions to work together to have this power to create change in this country so i i just really got got a lot out of getting a chance to speak to Eddie and I don't know if we talk about this in the pod or not, but a little known fact is that Eddie is the person who introduced me and taught me spreadsheets when spreadsheets were first invented. So before even Excel, Lotus 1, 2, 3, he showed me how to do precinct mm. analysis using spreadsheets. Oh, I think we did. I think we did touch upon that yeah. on the episode. <laughs> <laughs> you guys were nerding out and I was teasing you guys about well, that skill early has come nerds. in handy for if my so, whole life. Yeah. So another great example of coalition building, and also I think a great illustration of what I mean about building a meaningful minority of whites within this country and building the rainbow coalition that has a, a, a strong white stripe is Aaron Haney, um, the executive director of Showing Up for Racial Justice. And so I've been working with Aaron on this project, we're calling the White Stripe Project, around how do we broaden the white stripe of the rainbow coalition in this country and it's a collaboration with surge working families party and sandler phillips center and i really enjoyed getting to know aaron and the whole surge team and to see and respect their work that they're doing and then a quick little funny stories i was at a actually i was at a the working families party convention in philadelphia who's also with the in this white stripe project with us and that one of the evenings there well, this all ties into Tolu as well. So when I was in uh, Arizona, the hotel I stayed at when I was at the uh, book festival where I met Tolu was across the street from a comedy club. And I didn't go to that comedy club, but it planted the seed. And so that's part of what kicked me off on going to comedy clubs and having that be part of my like repertoire this year. Um, most cities I go to, I try to find the local comedy club and go to, go there. So Aaron and I were at the Working Families Party Convention in Philadelphia. I, we had dinner and I was like, do you want to go to this comedy club? So you go to this comedy club and most comedy clubs are like multiracial at best, often largely white. This Philadelphia comedy club 
was the blackest comedy club I have ever been to in terms of like 90 oh, plus percent of its wow. audience and me wow. and and white woman Aaron Haney of showing up for racial justice. So, awesome. so there's a certain irony in that. Yeah, I just think it's it's often the unnamed, as Steve says, like the unnamed elephant in the room that our opposition's base is nearly entirely white. And so if if our opponents rely on that support, I think a key strategy in undermining them is is doing two things. It's it's out organizing them in places where they're used to being dominant and where they you know think they can rely on a base of support. And then it's also moving white people, progressive white people who are with us off the sidelines and into really active and visible support for the campaigns that are often being led by groups more on the front lines, communities of color. The second, the second base that we're, we're going for is, you know, the base that we know that the right is also going after as well, um, which is poor and working class white people. You know, we're, we're going proactively into communities where we know white people have a lot to gain materially from joining multiracial movements and bringing those folks along. And so th- that work looks a little bit different. We're going there and talking to people about the issues that impact their lives and then talking to them very explicitly about race and helping people understand that fighting racism is actually in their self-interest because of the ways in which it's been used by people in power to divide us from working class communities of color. And so we're, we're organizing, you know, lots of different kinds of white folks, but I think, I think it's possible to move, move a lot of them. Yeah. I, I really appreciated getting the chance to talk to Aaron too. And I love that story you shared about all of y'all in the club, in the, comedy club and Aaron, because uh, <laughs> I wish I had a little video of that. First of all, I wish I was there. That sounds like so much fun. But it isn't every day that you get a chance to talk to someone like Aaron, who is a young woman, um, she's younger than me. And I, you know, just don't get to talk every day to somebody who identifies as white, who wakes up every day committing their working hours to fighting racism and injustice and working, continuing to model, but also figure out how to increasingly show up as a white ally and what white allyship really means and how it can look like beyond um, what I always think of is, you know, in the moment, hanging up a Black Lives Matters banner, you know, at best outside your house, which is, you know, better than nothing. But it's, you know, I mean, this might sound kind of jaded of me, but I am not alone in feeling this way. But sometimes some things can feel performative mm-hmm. and it doesn't cost the person anything. It doesn't cost them that much time or resources or sacrifice. And Aaron, and I know because I have um, also a really good friend who is involved in Surge. These are really special white people who mm-hmm. are trying to get other white people to speak spend more of their life committing to make a difference as a white ally and really learn what that means and to be unafraid and unapologetic. Uh, And I really just, I just really appreciate her. I really appreciate our conversation. Yeah, I I thought too in that episode, it just gave me a lot of hope. I think the news, like everything we see in the news is really dark and sad right now, but just remembering that, you know, there are people out there that are committed to social justice and racial justice and understand that, like, it takes, everyone has a role to play. I I just really appreciated that episode. So I wanted to also mention a guest that I really 
got a lot out of talking to you. And as mes- as most of our listeners know, we, we talk about this quite a bit on our podcast, but also in our newsletter, which is that the Latino population is a really significant piece of the multiracial coalition in our country, what Steve often calls the new American majority. And that population is absolutely the key to winning in so many parts of our country, politically and in, in elections. The numbers are significant. And in November, we had the chance to talk to Stephanie Valencia. She's the co-founder of Equis Labs. And we talked about how Latinos are the X factor. So the way you pronounce X in Spanish is Equis. So they're the X factor in our electoral politics and the key to winning. There is no denying that Latinos are changing the face of this country, how they relate to their identity, their sense of belonging in this country will really matter to how they participate in politics, how they participate in civic society, how they participate culturally and economically in this country. It's not just a a conversation about voting for us. That's very important. Like our job at Equis is not to make Latinos democratic robots. Our job at Equis is to help create a better understanding of who Latinos are and help to create conditions so that we can shift the notion of our own sense of belonging in this country. And we believe that if we are able to shift that notion of identity and belonging, Latinos are going to show up and vote. Latinos are going to show up at their kids' school board meeting. Latinos are going to show up and, you know, economically in this country, and they will be a force to be reckoned with, and people will feel accountable to this community for which I would argue um, we have been invisible, and no politician, no president has felt accountable to this community, and we want to shift that. Yeah, I was really glad we were able to have Stephanie on the podcast, right? Latinos are odd reality in our societies that it's actually the largest non-white population in the country, and I believe the fastest growing. Asians are also very fast growing, and yet they're completely overlooked and underappreciated and taken for granted and underinvested in. So I was really glad that we could have Stephanie on to talk about that, and also Stephanie herself. And I think that she's an example of a lot of these uh, types of leaders who are doing some of the most important work, but are actually not nearly as known as they should be. There's a lot of overlooking and underappreciating of these key types of leaders, kind of these unsung hero type people. And it just struck me, I'm also now reading this, this new biography of Martin Luther King, King right, with Jonathan Ige, and he goes into great granular detail about the rise of the civil rights movement, the Montgomery bus boycott, and that, you know, I'd like to use that example of Montgomery bus boycott of how sophisticated the organizing was in terms of they, you had to get 40,000 people communicated with, coordinated into cars to work at the same time. And there were so many unknown, like we all know Rosa Parks, um, but we don't know. That's when Joanne Robinson, Montgomery Improvement Association, um, there's the Montgomery Women's Organization who played a backbone role of organizing that whole movement. And I really see Stephanie in that role. She's doing this backbone work for the movement overall with a particular focus around strengthening and coordinating and projecting Latino leadership and power. So I was really glad we were able to shine a little bit of a spotlight on her. Yeah, and that conversation also highlighted the power of media narrative, just kind of tying to our first theme because we talked about 
the the radio stations that they've bought up and just being able mm. to counter media narratives. I feel like it's so revolutionary the way that they use WhatsApp to communicate with Latinos. And so I, I just, I really enjoyed that conversation too. Um, also in terms of coalitions, uh, I wanted to lift up the Greenpeace episode we had with uh, Ebony Tully Martin, the executive director of Greenpeace, mm-hmm. which is the climate justice movement and just thinking in terms of, you know, the different coalitions and climate justice being sort of a youth movement in a way. I really enjoyed that conversation. It was also my first episode that I joined mm. um, in front of the mic. So that was special for me. And I think it was also our most shared on Spotify, which mm. people should go check out our little Instagram graphic of our spotify stats so just a little plug. wrap up i'll wrap up yeah yeah she was awesome and i just loved you know getting a chance to hear about her journey how she got from being a mom with a kid with health conditions to to figuring out that his asthma wasn't because of his innate health but it was because Mm -hmm. of the pollution Mm -hmm. and the toxins in where they lived and the you know the racial disparity in how people live in this country who gets to have clean air who doesn't and i i wanted to also as a as a last episode that if i give a shout out to it i feel like see it may seem like we've shouted out all our episodes but this is actually only just a fraction there's so many awesome ones and so many awesome guests that we got to talk to but i did want to make sure that we highlighted and talked a little bit about our conversation with longtime activist Heather Booth. And again, just what an OG, total living legend, just also just such like a ball of like fire, you know, she's just so powerful and gracious and humble and wise and warm. And so Heather has been someone who has been at the front of movements for decades and there's so many causes. I was just blown away, couldn't keep track of all the causes she's been involved in and has helped make a difference for so many issues. And ultimately in a rather short lifetime, just a reminder of the difference one person can make. So uh, one thing that I'm particularly moved by and still blown away by that um, one of the things she's really known for is that she started what's called the Jane Collective or Jane. And that was the underground abortion service in Chicago back in the late 60s and early 70s. And the amount of risk that she took and just didn't think twice about helping women in that kind of underground way to provide them with safe abortion services in a time when it was so dangerous. And, you know, she was just going it alone. And that is something that I think was definitely historical and just amazing. That went on for several years. And then there were so many people coming through that the women started to assist Mike. And because it wasn't public and wasn't legal, rather than saying, we'd publicize it and say, pregnant, don't want to be, call and have a phone number. We said, call Jane. And we named Mm -hmm. the system Jane. And as the women started to support the procedures and become involved themselves, they also found out that Mike wasn't actually a licensed physician. And what they realized is if they could provide safe medical procedures in a caring environment, which Jane was. And if you could do it without a license, if he could do it, so could they. And so the women of Jane performed those 11,000 abortions. I actually think the number of abortions through Jane overall 
uh, before the women were doing the procedures may have been 20, 25,000, but the women of Jane performed 11,000 abortions before Roe. Yeah, I, I that episode was so powerful and felt like listening to living history, basically. Mm. You know, she talked about organizing with Fannie Lou Hamer during the Mississippi Freedom Summer. It's just, right. This is really, yeah, so powerful. Yeah, and I think what you, you were saying about it, it's in the span of a lifetime, how much change happens, right? And so again, mm. I, I keep hearkening back to the, the retreat that I was at where they were talking about, it was about 100 years ago that we had the global pandemic in that, which is almost, you know, slightly more than, not even more than, there's people who have lived that long. And so in the space of, you know, one lifetime, how much change happens, but also how much backlash we face. And I think Heather has seen a lot of that, right? From the Janes to the, well, both the overturning of Roe v. Wade, but also then the, you know, the response to that, where this may be a seminal issue. What is a seminal issue in these elections? It may be a determinative issue, the 2024 elections. So that ebb and flow was very much part of that historical historical reality. And it was also very deeply meaningful to me to connect with Heather and to more deeply engage with her legacy and her work. I mean, I've known Heather for a long time in that I've spent this past year very intentionally seeking out and connecting with and trying to um, learn from people who have also lost their spouses. And so Heather's uh, husband, Paul, died five years ago. And so she was very supportive of me. And then we had her on the podcast. In preparation for that podcast, I was watching this documentary about Heather, right? Heather Booth changing the world. And I was on Amazon. And that is what gave me the idea to seeing how you can capture and convey narrative and storytelling somebody's life in ways that can be inspiring going forward. And that's what gave me the idea about trying to do a documentary on Susan's life and legacy. And so we've actually that pretty far along on that. Now we've hired a filmmaker, Chelsea Hernandez, Stacey Abrams is going to be executive producer. Um, so we're going to be making a documentary on Susan's life and legacy. And that flowed from that engagement and the example of what Heather had done and what they had done about telling her story. Oh, I see it. And yeah, that's just another reminder how one one person's work can connect to another's and one story can help foster the stories of others. Before we wrap up, I wanted to have us go around and just briefly share some end of the year thoughts. I thought I'd just go first. I thought what, you know, what I would do is just really share what's been coming up for me when we're thinking about this episode, thinking about it being the end of the year. And just speak as honestly as I can in terms of what's been in my heart. I, I wanted to just take a moment to recognize a way I, I feel incredibly grateful for my own personal life and everything I have and my friends and family and uh, my health and the health of you know most of my loved ones. But I also wanted to recognize something that I've been going through experiencing this year, which I think a lot of people have, which is a particular heaviness this year for a lot of people around the world, uh, including in this country. In particular, what I'm talking about is in light of the ongoing conflict and crisis in the Middle East, and also the various additional humanitarian crises going on around the world, and that includes the ongoing war in Ukraine and humanitarian crises in Sudan and Syria. And I know we don't usually on this podcast talk about international politics. That's not our lane. That's not our focus. It is. Um, it would just be a totally different podcast. But I wanted to let listeners know that 
I recognize and I feel like our team here recognizes that what happens around the world impacts all of us and it weighs on us. And that mainly, even though our podcast primarily focuses on U.S. politics, we do try our best to focus on what's happening in our country so that we can hopefully shed some light in helping all of you understand what's happening from a different maybe perspective and lens that you would get somewhere else. And definitely what we do, as you've heard from us talking about our episodes and our guests today, is just try to offer as many voices and stories of hope and remind you all that even though the headlines are not showing it, there are every day so many people dedicate their lives to making this country better for as many people as possible. And I just wanted to share that and overall say that I'm sending a wish for everyone who's listening for peace and health. Helpful, I wanted to pass it to you. How are you feeling and any thoughts you want to share? Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Charlene. It's been, mm. been a really rough year, a really difficult few years, honestly. Personally, for my family, for everyone, I think, this year. And, you know, Steve, as you were mentioning earlier about Susan, it just had me thinking this year has been, I don't know, at least for my family, like a year of loss in a lot of ways that have been really difficult to move through. But I think the one thing that I keep coming back to is how much love there is around me and my family. And I'm just extremely grateful for that piece and the people that make up my community. When we think about the coalitions and what we're talking about, we're talking about communities. And what I've found that has sustained my family has been the rallying of the people who love us, who not always just family members, but people who have adopted you as family mm. and treat you like family. Um, you know, my best friend's mom is someone who comes to mind that has just loved us so well that like, I don't know, she's just, just by watching her, I've learned what it means to love other people. Um, mm. And so, yeah, I don't know where we would be as a family without the people. So I'm just feeling really grateful despite everything for the people that I have. Steve, what about you? Um, yeah, well, first I wanted, I do want to mention though for what Charlene was saying that uh, I knew we've been doing these uh, Sundays with Steve Facebook lives. And so I haven't known what exactly to say about the Middle East conflict. Things have been sitting heavily with me, but I did talk about it this past Sunday, Facebook live. So that's available out there on our platforms. Um, somebody had asked, I see it's, uh, Maurice Mitchell asked me in, um, February, he came out to have, he had dinner with me in the working families party. He says, how are you doing? And I had this reflection that's like, well, it was, uh, James Baldwin is his quote, says to be black and relatively conscious in America is to be in a rage almost all the time. And that I said, I've had a lot of anger in my life about injustice and fighting large and small, et cetera, et cetera. But I haven't had much sadness. And so, you know, I lost my mother, she had uh, dementia for a decade. I talk about, you know, 10 year funeral. My dad's still, you know, doing great at 91. I saw him over uh, Thanksgiving. So I haven't had a tremendous amount of sadness in my life. And so grappling with and dealing with how to move on um, without Susan has been, I mean, there aren't really even words to describe it, um, but that's been like a dominant reality. So I just want to say a couple of things about that. For one, is I don't think we deal. I don't think we deal well with grief in our society. And mm -hmm. so I just wanted to share a couple of things about that in terms of what has been helpful to me. So, um, well, one is that there are resources. There are different books. There's different podcasts, TV shows. I kind of 
oddly got into some of these shows I wouldn't have been into, but they're about grieving people. Uh, this Ricky Gervais show or whatnot. Um, but this, I think, you know, there's no one path, I think is the other thing. And so something kind of almost have this gallows humor. There's a very good podcast that Anderson Cooper does called All There Is. And it's about grief. And he has many interviews. He interviews Stephen Colbert, which I thought was a really good. Stephen Colbert has a comment about you should almost want to be able to get to grief because it means that you had something great to grief. So I thought that was interesting. And then he interviews this other black woman whose father had said to live your beautiful life. And so he has, I found that podcast really helpful. I just wanted to share that as a resource. And there are other resources. The second thing is kind of what you were just kind of saying, Fola, about friends and family that I think it's just as a, it's not, it's oftentimes we don't know what to do or what to say. And so making the effort to say something and just to reach out, to text, to check in, and then grief is not linear. And so, you know, just go through it and then just get over it and move forward. So checking in on the regular is very meaningful. It's very meaningful to me, along with understanding that, you know, it's hard to respond to it. So I think I put on Facebook, so I'm grateful to everybody who has reached out and invited me to things. And I'm grateful to people who have understood when I've not gone to things, right? But I appreciate the the effort and the reaching out. And so I wanted to say that. I wanted to say on this platform to thank everybody who has offered me so much love and support over this past year. It's um, been immeasurably helpful. And maybe I will close with, uh, of you know, for doing the drinking game of Jesse Jackson and this art piece as well to round out my living room, right? Because also you were talking, Phil, about like how hard different things are, right? And everything is hard. And I, what I've tried to hold on to over the decades is give me some frame of reference and grounding is that is this, I was in Maxine Waters. We did a march on Sacramento in 1989. Students, educational equity, education is a right for a future we shall fight. And um, we are up. So Jesse Jackson came out for that. And we were up in Maxine Waters' office when she was in the state legislature and getting ready to go out for the rally. And then somebody says to Jesse, says, you must be so tired, Jesse. You're dealing with all this and you're traveling all over the country. And you must be really exhausted. And without missing a beat, Jesse says, it beats picking cotton. And that has always stayed with me. For a long time, I had a big uh, photo of people working in the fields picking cotton in my office. And so to wrap this in terms of the whole art piece, um, so back to my living room. So my living room is going to have this G's Band quilt that I talked about. There's another wall, which I have called the, well, one piece is the award that I, Susan and I got from Center for Community Change. Deepak Bhargava was ahead of it. And they had this artistic rendering that, you know, me and Susan, the causes we've been part of. And so I've blown that up. And so that's going to be in this living room. And then I have, I'm calling this Obama wall. And so there's a painting by this painter, T. Ellis, called The Journey. It basically shows African-Americans going from the slave ship to the cotton fields to corporate America to the White House. And then juxtaposed uh, perpendicular to that wall is the wall of Obama in my house with me and Susan with a collage of photos from that. So I have all of those pieces. And then the last piece that I've gotten that's going to be going up, it's called Cotton Picker. And so there's a person actually reaching down, picking cotton. And so, I don't know, I just wanted to share that in terms of the where I am at, in terms of feeling rooted in that context and journey and history, trying to draw from the art, trying to weave together and preserve not just the memories, but the work and the lesson and the connection of, you know, of what, you know, Susan and I were doing. So obviously, I still feel tremendous sadness, 
but also great resolve and responsibility is that, you know, Susan wanted me to continue this work. And so I am off for a couple of weeks to rest, recuperate. My family members will be with me. My niece, Courtney, was a previous podcast guest as I rest up, but I'm very much determined and looking forward to coming back in 2024 and carrying on this work with all of you, Fola, Shirley, and Olivia, and then all of our listeners as well. And I want to thank everybody for the support in this. I look forward to connect with everybody. Next. Yeah, we appreciate you. I have said I love you to more people this year than I've ever said in my life as far oh, as we Steve. move on. So, All right. So let's wrap this pod. Let's wrap 2023 from the podcast end. And so I want to thank everyone for listening to Democracy in Carlo with Steve Phillips. Please help us get the word out about this podcast by subscribing wherever you get your podcasts, sharing with your friends, tweeting at Democracy Color and at Steve P. Tweets, and finding us at Democracy in Color on Facebook or Instagram. You can also keep up with all things Demco by subscribing to our newsletter at democracyincolor.com. If you listen to our podcast on iTunes, please leave us a rating and a comment. It helps others to find our show. This podcast is a Democracy in Color production. Our producer is Olivia Parker. Fola Onifade is our staff writer and associate producer. Charlene Chang is our editor and co-host. Special thanks to April Elkier for Quality Check. Recorded virtually with the assistance of the podcast studio San Francisco. Until next time, thank all of you for listening throughout this year. We will see you next year. Keep the faith.